Well, hey, good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good. Hey, do me a favor. We've got a lot to get after this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, can you open them right up to John chapter 6? We're going to be in John 6 this morning. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. We have people coming down the aisles who'd love to get a copy of God's Word into your hand. If you don't own a Bible, please keep that as our gift to you. But we're going to be in John 6, the first 21 or so verses. So you're definitely going to want a Bible out in front of you. And so uh, if you're taking notes, um, I'm going to kind of show you right now where we're going and what we're talking about. This morning, we're um, going after one question in God's Word. We're kind of tackling one main idea, and it's this. Here's the big question this morning. What do you do when you have no idea what to do? What do you do when you find yourself in a situation where you're like, man, I have no idea how to navigate this. I have no idea what to do. Have any of you ever been in that situation? You know what that feeling feels like? It's like, man, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know what to do right now. So a little secret about me. Um, I have a absolute favorite time of the week. My favorite moment of the week, and I know this is so different for most people, but mine is actually Monday mornings. Right? I don't have the Sunday scaries because Monday is my off day. And so what happens in our house is um, Monday mornings, Mary usually lets me sleep in and she takes the kids to school. And then Monday morning from like nine to noon is our date morning. And uh, if we're exhausted and we're wiped out, we might just hang at the house. Um, sometimes we go out to breakfast. But our favorite thing to do, what we do most Monday mornings, when the weather is somewhat cooperative, we love to take our dog, Sully, who's a um, black lab, we take him down to the waterfront stadium in Grand Haven and we walk the boardwalk. And we grab coffee from Sidebar and we just talk. And we kind of talk about the weekend of ministry we just had. We get our uh, schedules aligned, make sure everything's on the same page going into the week ahead. And just a great time for me to connect with my wife. It's my favorite time of the week. And I remember a couple months ago, it was kind of right when we launched our ministry launch. So in September, uh, we were doing what we always do on Mondays. We'd gone to Sidebar. We'd gotten coffee. We were walking towards the stadium in uh, Grand Haven. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, a woman walks by. She's an older woman, and, and she recognizes me, but I don't recognize her. And, and she looks at me, and I can tell she's concerned. And, and she says, oh, good, you're here. And then she points and goes, you need to go help that man. And I'm like, okay. So I look, and sitting kind of the, by the water all by himself was a, a young guy, probably in his early to mid-20s. And um, all of a sudden, I started to, to listen, and what I would say is, is even 100 yards away, it was very clear that this man was distressed. He was sitting by himself, sobbing louder than I have ever heard anyone cry in my entire life. And she's like, yeah, you need to go help him. And if I could be really honest with you, my first thought in that moment was like, man, I just want to go on a walk with my wife this morning, right? And I'm like, well, that's selfish, huh? So I like quick repent to the Lord. I'm like, forgive me for my selfishness, and I'm going to be obedient, and I'm going to be faithful. And so I go walk over there, and like he is crying so loudly that there was like a group of like five or six people like kind of gathered around, and he wasn't acknowledging them. And, and they're like, we don't, we don't know what to do. Do we need to call the police? Like, what's going on? And so I pulled them aside. I'm like, listen, I'm a pastor. I'll sit with this guy. If there's something more that needs to happen, I'll take care of it. And uh, so I sat with the guy and he just was there just sobbing like massive snot trails 
all of the, you know, fluids coming out of his face, um, sobbing, sobbing, sobbing. And for five minutes, it felt like 50 minutes. He didn't even acknowledge that I was there. And so I just sat there and he's crying. And finally he looks at me and he's like, dude, you, you don't need to stay. And I was like, well, I, I want to. And I said, my name is Calvin. And I explained that I'm a pastor. And I'm like, what's going on, man? It's, you're really broken up. And he just cried for about another two or three minutes. And I just sat there in silence. Finally, he started to talk and he started to open up. And what had happened was a couple weeks earlier, um, his sister had been murdered in Muskegon. And he goes, I haven't cried until today. And something just broke inside of me and my heart is broken and I don't know how to handle it. And, and so I'm sitting there, I'm like, what do you tell a guy in that situation? I've never been through anything like that. Like, I don't know what to say. So I just kept sitting with him. And over the next 20 minutes or so, I was able to kind of say, hey, listen, um, I know losing a loved one is awful. And I was like, you know that God knows what it's like to lose a loved one? And was able to talk about Jesus, to share some hope with Christ. And then it, he kind of calmed down a little bit. He stopped crying. And then I was like, hey, can I get you some food? Do you need anything? Do you need to be anywhere? And he's like, no, 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 actually, I've got to go to work pretty soon. And um, got to a spot where he was at least functional again. And it was just one of those moments where like out of nowhere, wasn't planning it, wasn't expecting it, but I got put in a situation where I'm like, God, you have to help me because I have no words to say right now and I don't know what to do. And sometimes it works like that, right? Where like all of a sudden out of nowhere, you're put in a spot that's scary or, or concerning and you're like, man, I don't know how to handle this. Sometimes it's things that build up over time, isn't it? Man, I don't know how to help my kid right now. He's getting bullied in school and his relationships are difficult or he's rebellious and making bad decisions and I don't know how to help. I don't know how to help my parents. They're getting older. Life is becoming more difficult and I don't want to overstep my bounds, but I, I, I know they might need some more care. I don't know how to navigate this. Maybe you're here and you feel walls building up in your marriage. And it's like, man, there's certain things that happen in our marriage where every time we talk about this thing, it always leads to a fight. And I don't want the tension. I don't want to be in that space, but I don't know exactly how to fix it. Maybe it's a career decision. Maybe you have a friend whose life is falling apart. And it's like, man, I don't know what to do. And I would say if we were honest with ourselves, most of us work really, really hard to avoid this feeling, don't we? We like certainty. We like being in control. We don't like being in a position where we are scared or nervous or feel out of control. Well, this morning, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see Jesus put his disciples in two different situations where they have no idea what to do. And what I'm going to make an argument is that God, because he loves us, is going to have us walk through seasons of storms and difficulties. And it's not in spite of his love for us, but it's because he loves us. And God's best work in our hearts is often done when we are at a loss for what to do. So I'm going to read in John 6. I'm going to read the first 21 verses. It's a lot. Follow along as I read. It says this. It says, after Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him, and because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick, and Jesus went up the, on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand, and lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? 
And he said this to test him, for he knew himself what he would do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said, Hey, here's a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in this place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled the 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves and left those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. Now it was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them and the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed out about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. Okay, so we see in these verses two of the most famous miracles Jesus does. Like if you were to say, hey, what were the top five miracles Jesus did? You would probably say Jesus feeding the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. So in John 6, we see both of these stories. And here's the first thing you need to notice. This is really important on a macro level in the book of John. We're seeing a significant shift in the ministry of Jesus. John 6 is a turning point in the Gospel of John, and let me explain this to you. Up until this point in the book of John, if you've been with us through this study, we've seen Jesus do three miracles. Um, The first miracle was the wedding at Cana. And if you remember, Jesus turned water into wine, and he did it completely secretly, right? Like no one knew that it was Jesus, except for his mom and some of the servants, the the hosts of the wedding were like, man, who made the, the great wine and who, why'd you bring it out last? They didn't know that Jesus had performed the miracle. The second miracle Jesus did was he healed an official's son. Now think about it. The only people that would have known that Jesus actually healed the official's son would have been the official and the servants when they got back to his house. It wasn't necessarily a miracle that everyone saw in the moment. It was more under the radar. And then a couple weeks ago, we saw that Jesus healed a man who was lame by the pool of Bethsaida. And by lame, I mean couldn't walk. I don't mean not cool, right? There are different kind of lames there. And uh, what happened was, even the man himself, when the Pharisees asked who healed you, he had to go back and find Jesus because Jesus wasn't taking the credit for it. It was private. It was individual. These miracles have been by and large under the radar. But if you remember last week, Jesus publicly takes on the Pharisees. The Pharisees are critical of Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. And they're like, what allows you to work on the Sabbath? And Jesus goes, I can work on the Sabbath because I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And then he's like, you guys look at the scriptures and you say you love God's word, but all of God's word, it all points to me and you don't love me or respect me or worship me. You're missing the forest for the trees. He proclaims himself as the Messiah. He takes on the religious leaders and don't miss in John 6. Now he does a miracle that serves somewhere between five and 20,000 people, depending on how many women and children were there in one moment. He's gone from private miracles kind of behind the scenes, 
to he just did a miracle that thousands and thousands of people would have experienced, would have received the benefit of, and would have been talking about. Jesus has gone very public with his ministry, and I want you to understand this. This is not a miracle that you can walk back. Jesus is starting a chain of events that he knows will lead him to the cross. This is as public of a miracle and a ministry that Jesus will ever have. It's a significant shift. Here's the second thing you need to see. The crowds that are coming to Jesus, they're coming to him for the wrong reasons. Check out the language John uses when he talks about the crowds. In verse 2, it says, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick, right? So rumors have kind of popped up about this miracle worker, so they want to check him out. Verse 14, and when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself, All right, so think about this. There's rumors about Jesus. Here's a miracle worker. He's claiming to be the Messiah. Let's check out to see who he is. And then Jesus spends an entire day talking with them and preaching to them. And man, I don't know if you're like me, but man, it's like, man, I wonder what he taught about. Like, I would imagine it was pretty good if it was coming from Jesus, right? Like, how many of you have ever thought, man, it would be so amazing just to spend like 15 minutes with Jesus today? Like, if I could just have 15 minutes with Jesus, I would be so encouraged and so hopeful and my faith would be strengthened so much. These people got a whole day with Jesus. But it says that it was only after they saw the sign that he did and he gave them lunch and he fed their stomachs that they're like, all right, we're going to make him king whether he wants it or not. You don't see any sign of them worshiping Jesus as Lord. You don't see any repentance over sin. They're like, no, no, we're going to make him king and we're going to force it on him even if he doesn't want to be king. Church, look at me. This is important. Here's what the crowd's problem was. They wanted Jesus for the stuff that he could give them more than they wanted Jesus himself. They wanted their sicknesses healed. They wanted the food. They wanted their physical needs met. They wanted him to overthrow Rome so they could have their freedom and their land back. They wanted the stuff that Jesus could give them, but they were missing the gift that Jesus was himself. So can I ask you a question? Does this still happen today? Are there people that come to Jesus because they want the stuff that he can give more than they want Jesus himself? Do me a favor, turn to your neighbor and says, this absolutely happens today. This happens all the time, and here's why this is so dangerous, even for our hearts this morning. The reason this is so dangerous is because the stuff that Jesus offers is really, really great. Did you know that? Like, I am convinced, if you want to have the best possible marriage, honor Jesus, live by biblical principles, put him first. And I mean, we have seen in our church hundreds of examples of Jesus restoring and healing and building and strengthening marriage. And it's an awesome thing and we love it. But we can't want the strong marriage more than we want Jesus. Jesus offers us contentment. He offers us blessing, peace, healthy relationships, hope, purpose, victory, identity. Jesus offers us these things, and they're amazing. The danger is is when we want these things more than we want Jesus. So here's what I want to do right now. I want to take a little pause, and I want to talk about three warnings or three indicators that we might actually be coming to Jesus for his stuff rather than him. 
Three indicators we want Jesus' stuff more than Jesus. Here's the first. Uh, I know this is the case when my pursuit of Jesus is reactive rather than proactive. When my pursuit of Jesus is reactive rather than proactive, it's because I just want his stuff. Uh, Here's a question. How many of you have that person in your life, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a friendship, maybe it's a classmate, that the only time that person ever reaches out to you, it's because they want something? Do you guys know what that's like? Do you have that person in your life? If you're sitting next to them, don't point them out right now. But uh, we know what that's like. And it's like this person calls you and you see their name on your phone and you're like, man, I don't even want to answer this right now because I know I'm going to be tasked to do something. Do me a favor, turn to your neighbor and say, don't be that person. Right? That person is the worst, right? But look at me. I worry that sometimes we default to this type of relationship when it comes to Jesus. Right? And if our prayer life only ever consists of us asking Jesus to solve our problems, hey, Lord, would you bless my meeting this morning? It's going to be difficult. Would you show up? Um, Lord, will you fix my marriage? Lord, will you change my kid? Lord, will, will, will you heal this relationship? Listen to me. All of those prayers are good prayers. But if that's the extent of it, you're viewing your relationship through the lens of, God, what can you do for me and how can you build up my thing? Like, there's a difference between only ever praying, hey, God, help me with my thing, and and, hey, Jesus, I love you, I exist to worship you, and to honor you, and to glorify you. Hey, God, would you give me opportunities to further your kingdom today? God, would you empower me so that I can worship you and have a testimony in my place of work? Do you see the difference? One is, 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 hey, God, would you help me with my thing? So in the moment when something's going wrong, I'm going to throw out a prayer and ask for help. The other is proactive, saying, God, I want to be about your thing. Would you strengthen me to live out your purposes in my life? Listen, I have been doing ministry at this church long enough that I've seen it happen. I've seen people come to church and their marriage is falling apart or they have a crisis and, and they turn to the Lord and they're in God's word and they join a small group and they come and they experience a lot of healing and restoration and life change. And then as soon as things stabilize, they bail. It's because they only wanted God to fix their crisis. God didn't have their heart. He didn't have their worship. So as soon as things stabilize, they go right back to the same patterns that got them into the crisis. And I'm like, man, you're crazy. And they just don't care. One of the things that God used so powerfully in my life um, was the testimony of my mom. And if you know my mom, you know that I'm not lying about this. But every day growing up in my house, I would come home from school and mom would have uh, the Bible out on the kitchen counter and she'd be studying it. Sometimes for women Bible study, sometimes for personal devotional. But like the cool thing was is it was day in, day out, every year in good seasons in bad seasons, in seasons of victory, in seasons of trial, in seasons where we had, you know, 18 soccer practices and games every week, in seasons where life was quieter. But there was a consistent, proactive, I love the Lord, I love his word, I want to be used by God. And it wasn't just reacting to the circumstances. Which one are you? How do you approach your relationship with God? Is it proactive or reactive? Here's the second one. Um, I know I just want Jesus' stuff um, when I'm comfortable with saying that I'm angry with God, when my anger turns towards God. Uh, Someone asked me this morning, hey, Pastor Cal, what's your favorite book in the Bible? And the first book that I went to was the book of Jonah. I love the book of Jonah. Do you guys, uh, are you familiar with that story? 
Jonah was the prophet that God called to go to Nineveh and, and to preach to the Ninevites. And remember, Jonah's like, I hate those people. They're our enemies. I want nothing to do with them. God, you should have nothing to do with them. And he runs away from God's calling on his life. And he tries to get away as far from Nineveh as he can. And, and God miraculously causes a storm to stop the boat. They throw Jonah overboard. A fish swallows Jonah. And then three days later, God kind of gets after Jonah's heart. Miraculously, he is spit up onto the shore. And then Jonah goes to Nineveh, he follows God's command, and he preaches that, hey, if you don't repent in turn, God's going to destroy your city. And the hearts of the Ninevites change, and they repent, and they seek the Lord, and there's this massive revival in this city. And the chapter I love most in Jonah is chapter 4, because what happens is, is Jonah's still mad that God's saving the Ninevites. So he goes up on the mountain and he's like, I'm just going to sit here and watch to see if God destroys the city, right? Not a great place for your heart to be if you're just like doom creeping on a city hoping that it gets destroyed. And uh, God causes this plant to grow up and it gives Jonah shade from the sun and Jonah's really pumped about it. Well, then over the night, God brings a worm and it eats the plant. And the next day, Jonah has no shade and it's hot outside and Jonah's just miserable. And he's like, God, I'm mad at you. I'm mad that you're saving the Ninevites. I'm mad that you killed this plant. He goes, God, would you just kill me? And God just has like the best response. He goes, hey, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? God's like, are you serious, bro? Are you really mad at me right now? He's like, think about the nature of our relationship. You didn't listen to me. You ran away from me. You told me that I was wrong. You lived in rebellion, and I pursued you, and I chased you, and I saved you, and I redeemed you, and I restored your life. I put you back into ministry, and I've used you to cause revival for my name's sake in a city, and you're mad at me. He goes, that's nuts. He goes, why should you be mad that I'm showing the same grace and kindness towards the Ninevites that I've shown to you? And Jonah has like nothing to say. And uh, here's what I would tell you. When I was like in college or in high school, there was a really popular trend where it was cool to say that you were mad at God. And if you were going through a difficult circumstance or if things hadn't worked out how you wanted them or if something had happened to you, it'd be like, yeah, I'm, I'm really mad that God allowed this. If you believe in the Bible, if you believe in the gospel and the story of Scripture, can I explain something to you? You realize you and I never have the moral high ground when it comes to our relationship with God, right? Like we are the rebellious ones. We are the ones who wickedly turned our hearts away from God. We are the ones that try to live in our own strength, for our own glory, for our own name, almost every single day. And God is patient with us, and he's kind, and he's redeeming, and he's restoring, and he gives us his spirit, and he chases us down, and he gives of himself so that we may have life. Like, listen, when you are sinned against, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be angry at the brokenness of our world. It's okay to be angry at sin. It's okay to be angry at our rebellion. But when we turn our anger to God, here's what our hearts are doing. It's telling on itself. And it's saying, God, I want my life to be comfortable and easy and go the way I want it. And because it's not going that way, I'm angry at you. Your heart is telling on yourself that you're more committed to your thing than you even are the holiness and reputation of God. God has never been anything but more good to you than we could ever imagine. Amen? Here's the third indicator. It's when my agenda and my timing take the priority. And this was the issue with the crowd. Look at uh, verse 15. It says, Jesus then perceiving 
that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the crowd's like, man, this is what we want. We want to be free of Rome. Jesus, we're going to use you to make that happen. It wasn't about following Jesus. It wasn't about elevating Jesus as Lord. It wasn't about turning from their sin. It's Jesus, what can you do for me? So Jesus is looking at this crowd and he's like, they're not getting it. And so here's what he does, and I want you to see this. I think these two miracles are way more about his disciples than they are the crowd. Jesus knows that the crowd's hearts aren't committed to Jesus. He knows that they're going to come and they're going to go. And Jesus is actually dialing in and focusing on the heart of his followers and his disciples in this passage. So here's what I want to do with the rest of our time. I want to look quickly at five ways that Jesus disciples that we see in this text. Here's the first. Um, Jesus disciples us by leading us into difficult situations. Jesus leads us into difficult situations. In both of these miracles, Jesus actively puts his disciples into a situation where they don't know what to do. Look at verse 5. Jesus sees the crowd coming. He says, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? So Jesus sees thousands of people coming to him, and he's like, hey, Philip, how are we going to pay for dinner? Can I ask you a question? What is Philip supposed to say in that moment? They're like, we're a bunch of poor kids who left everything to follow you. We hardly have money for us. And Jesus isn't like, hey, should I do a miracle? He's like, where are we going to come up with the money? Philip's like, we can't come up with the money, Jesus. It's impossible. And in verse 6, John's like, yeah, Jesus knew that he was going to take care of it. He just was doing it to test him. You need to hear me. Jesus wasn't worried about the solution. He wasn't worried about the food. He was getting after his disciples' hearts. He put Philip in a spot where he didn't know what to answer on purpose because Jesus is actively leading and discipling his heart in this moment. And then right after he performs the miracle, he sends them out to the Sea of Galilee, and then a storm hits the sea when they're out there. All right, quick show of hands. Who think Jesus knew a storm was coming when he sent his disciples out of the boat? Yeah, he probably was a decent weatherman, huh? Um, do you think he did it on purpose? Okay, so listen to yourself. Here's what you're saying. That Jesus took the people that he loved most on this earth and sent them into a storm because he loved them. If he's going to do that for his disciples, won't he do that for us? He leads us into difficult situations. So it's so easy for us to believe the lie that when we are in the storm, we're all alone. Or that Jesus isn't sovereign or he's not in control or he's not present Listen, if you find yourself in a storm this morning, Jesus has you there because he loves you. He is working all things together for your good and for his glory. He's going to grow you in this storm. Here's the next thing we see Jesus do. We see Jesus calls us to follow clear instructions. Look at verse 8. It says, so one of his disciples, Andrew, Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, and he sat the, man, the men down, about 5,000 in number. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. Okay, here's what I love about this. Jesus is the one who provides the solution. All the disciples have to do is listen to his words. 
The disciples are like, we don't know what to do. And Jesus is like, all right, give me the loaves and the fish. And then he's like, have everyone sit down. And, and then he prays. And then he organizes the disciples. He goes, take these baskets, pass them out, follow my instruction. Then he goes, hey, collect all of the food when it's done. Jesus takes charge. He gives out the instructions. All the disciples have to do is follow the words of Jesus. Do you know that God has given us his word to follow in seasons when we don't know what to do? Uh, I love this Psalm, Psalm 119, 105. It's very famous. It says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. How many of you guys have heard that before, right? Really, really famous Psalm. There's even a kind of cheesy like Sunday school song that some of you might've know about that, that I'm not gonna sing right now because I'm not a worship leader and I don't have to, but it's one that you like you memorized growing up. And here's what struck me this week as I was thinking about this text. Do you see that Psalm 109, like it's telling us that life's gonna be dark sometimes? That the reason God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path is because there's gonna be moments where we don't know which way is due north and it's gonna be scary and we're not gonna know where to step. And he's like, in those moments when it's dark outside, use scripture as the light that leads your steps. Well, how does scripture do that? Well, in scripture, we get instructions, right? God tells us, do not lie, do not lie. No matter how scary the situation is, no matter how much trouble you think you might be in, tell the truth, God will honor that. Honor your father and mother do not live out of anger because anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It instructs us how to live. Um, it gives us examples. I think if you're here and you find yourself in a situation where you don't know what to do, um, you should hang out and, and study David when he was in the wilderness running for his life from King Saul. I mean, so think about this. God anoints David as the next king. He says, I'm gonna make you king. And then Saul, the current king, loses his mind and chases David down for years trying to murder him. And guess what David says? He goes, I waited patiently on the Lord and he heard my cry. It wasn't my timing. It wasn't easy. And I was crying out to the Lord. But when I was patient, he heard me. Do you know there was moments when David was in the wilderness where he could have taken things into his own hand and even murdered Saul and he refused to do it because he wouldn't murder the Lord's man? I'm gonna do what's right. I'm gonna honor the Lord. I'm gonna be upright even when it's scary and difficult. Jesus, or the God's word gives us reminders. Hey, you reap what you sow. If you sow according to the flesh, you're gonna reap corruption. If you sow unto the spirit, you're going to reap life. Like God is not mocked. There are consequences for our actions. God, God's word gives us promises. He says, right now what you're going through, you see dimly, but there's going to come a day where you're going to see everything clearly. I think it was John Piper who said that, man, if we knew what God knew, we would pray for everything that God has given us because he is sovereign and he's good and he loves us and he's giving us exactly what we need even if we can't see it right now. Look at me, this is important. When life gets dark and you don't know what to do, this is the moment you need to simplify things and you need to ask yourself one question. What does honoring the Lord look like right now? In this moment, when I don't know what to do, what would glorify and honor Jesus? What would bring worship to Jesus' name? It was really cool. This week, I was hanging out with a man who is um, really kind of working through and wrestling with a significant shift in his career. And uh, 
right? No option is wrong, but they're really wrestling with it. And he's talking with his wife and they're praying and they're talking to leaders and people they respect, everything that you would want someone to do who's wrestling with the life decision. And what's cool was when I was meeting with him, this was his attitude. He goes, I am convinced that obedience to Jesus looks like this for my family. It wasn't about what's most comfortable. It wasn't about what's easiest. It wasn't about what maybe even makes most sense. But he's like, I believe obedience to Christ is going to lead me this way. I don't know what to do, but I'm committed to honoring Jesus. And he's like, Cal, do you see this in me? And push back if I'm lying to myself or if I'm blind in an area. Right? If you're here and your marriage is in a spot where you're like, man, there are some walls that don't seem to be breaking down. Men, here's what I would encourage you. Commit today, I'm going to love my wife as Christ loved the church. And I'm going to be gracious, and I'm going to be kind, and I'm going to give myself sacrificially. I'm going to lay down my wants and my rights so that my wife would flourish, and that's what I'm committed to. And I promise you the Lord will bless you and meet you in that moment. All right, here's the third thing we see. Jesus disciples us by showing himself to be present and sufficient. I love that both of these miracles, Jesus himself is the answer. The disciples don't have to do anything to feed the 5,000. They just have to obey Jesus, and Jesus moves miraculously. The disciples don't have to navigate their way out of the storm. It wasn't about their effort or their rowing skill. Jesus shows up and solves the problem. The thing you and I need most is Jesus. And the reason Jesus leads us into storms is because he's showing himself to be sovereign and all-powerful in a way that if the seas are always calm, we'll never understand. If life is always comfortable, if it's always easy, we're never going to grow in our faith and our reliance on Jesus. Jesus sends us to the storm to show us that he is in control. The fourth way Jesus disciples is he draws our hearts towards deeper worship. So in Matthew, in his gospel, he records the same story in chapter 14 of his book, but he goes into a little bit more detail, specifically about Jesus and the storm. And he talks about Peter meeting Jesus and walking on water. And look at how he finishes this story in Matthew 14, 32 and 33. It says this, it says, when they got on the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. Okay, so here's what I want you to think right now. Compare the disciples in that moment to the crowd. The crowd's coming to Jesus saying, hey, Jesus, we're going to force you to be king so you can accomplish our purposes. The disciples who have gone through the storm, they're on their knees saying, Jesus, you are the son of God and you are Lord and you are worthy of worship and praise. That's the difference between loving Jesus for who he is and wanting Jesus for his stuff. And the safest, best place you and I will ever live is when we are worshiping and exalting Jesus Christ as Lord. Amen? Because it's true and it's real and he's king of kings and Lord of lords. And what he is doing in our life is drawing us to a deeper sense of worship. And then here's the last thing, church. Jesus is still doing this today. And I know that there's many stories of people in this room that would say the same, but there's no better way for me to explain this than to show you a very clear example and picture of how God is doing this and did do this in a life of a family at Harvest. Check out this video. On a mission trip and was really confronted with what does practical faith look like? To me, that was really the culmination of something bigger that I think God was, was working in my heart. 
to say um, there's a real practical need that can be met. Since I was young, like I remember in middle school, talking to friends and being like, yep, when I grow up, I'm gonna have kids. I want to adopt the kids. Our second date that we both had that conversation about, that's how we were feeling called to, to grow our family. So we've always said that for us, adoption was plan A. We had been married around seven years, I think. Mm -hmm. We started the adoption process, went to all the classes, and then we decided we wanted to do international adoption. Started going down that road. The home study done, we had other things done. Approached from a family at church, approached us and said, I know you're in the process of doing international adoption, but are you open to domestic adoption? Brooklyn, somebody in our church came to us with, with Trell. It was a, a family from Grand Haven Christian School was currently fostering him and it was gonna be an opportunity to adopt him and we knew him and he knew our family. So, so we walked through that door. Different circumstances, different situations and family dynamics, but situations that God just so clearly knocked on our door with an opportunity to, uh, to walk through it with adoption. We brought a little girl into our home who was five months old, coming from a, a really rough situation. She was a, a part of our family. We had never had it go a different way. We just assumed this was going down a path that we were gonna be able to adopt her. Where they said, okay, in you know, a month, she's gonna be transitioned out of your home. The hardest day and probably the worst day of our lives. I would just say through the process, even when I didn't believe it, I said, I don't understand the plan, but I trust the one who made it. And I would just say that over and over, even the days where it was, I'd leave my office at work and literally go in the bathroom and throw up because of how painful that process was. Folks that have a heart for adoption or, or that have done that is that you're not watching someone else's kids. They're your kids. And, and whatever God does in our hearts through that process, um, there's no differentiation. We lose a child that was your child, right? Even though, you know, you know like there's, that's that possibility. Um, yeah, f fundamentally, I think for us, for me, it started, like I put up walls and I was like, thought I knew what God was doing with this mm -hmm. stuff, um, but, but maybe I don't get it. And like, even when you're doing the right things, the wrong things can happen. Um, and I think that was a really, really big moment of growth that definitely caused fear. In mm -hmm. for a couple years, I think we would have said, no, we're good, we're done. Yep. <laughs> we're not gonna do this again. Uh, when Rose is less than a year old, we got approached from a family at Grand Haven Christian that we have known for years. And she said, I know you just had Rose, but like, are you still open to more kids? And immediately the answer was yes. And like, I hadn't even talked to Mario. <laughs> it was just, yep, totally fine. Like, we would love to have more children. He's like, okay, I have a family friend who is looking into adoption. And we got connected to this birth mother out of state. A great relationship with each other. We had talked for a few months. She asked lots of questions about her family. We were able to ask her questions. And we've just, we had never had that prior in any of our adoptions. A couple months into having relationship with her, she came back and said, yeah, I just don't think I can do this. Yeah. Kind of left it at that, like we didn't know what that meant. Mm -hmm. Said I can't do this and then cut off all communication. It was radio silence for a couple months. Yeah, a couple months. A few months later, K 
came back to us and said, is it too late? Yeah. And it was about three, three weeks before her due date. We said, absolutely, it's not too late. Like, we are here for you. We had to figure out how to get a home study that takes a month to complete, done in less than a month, so we could be down there for his birth. He told us, like, it'll t it's six months to get a home study. And I said, how much does it cost to get a social worker for the amount of time that we need? And they're like, really? And I said, we gotta do this. Like, we gotta get this kid in three weeks. <laughs> they dedicated like a full-time social worker to this. We'd get attorneys in Michigan, attorneys in another state. Like, it was an all hands on deck, you know, process to pull this all together. But Brooklyn and Trail helped pick out clothes and put the bassinet together. And I mean, we were unbelievably excited. On Easter, she, she texted Mary and said, I'm going in. We jumped in the car and, and drove nine hours to go stay at the hospital to, to be there for when he was born. So we had a good chance to spend some time with his mom the day before um, and then uh, get all kind of the paperwork said and, and he was born. He came out and it was beautiful and I got to hold him. And um, not long after you got to come down and hold him, she was very open with Yep, you go ahead and hold him. She held him. Like, I mean, it was it was a beautiful moment. And he was a beautiful baby. It was Tuesday, so under the law of the state that we were in, you know, uh, she couldn't sign paperwork for 48 hours. So, uh, so we stayed in the hospital. He stayed in the room with us. You know, we were caring for him, getting up in the night, doing all the, you know, stuff you do with an infant. He was effectively in our care for those 48 hours. On that day, you know, we've got the car seat, we're, we're ready to roll and everything's done, like this is the final step. And um, that morning she said, you know, can I see him? And we called our attorney and she I said, is that normal? And she was like, uh, might not be. And so she asked to see, but he's, she's his mom, right? And nurse actually came back and said, she's not gonna sign. The papers and uh, I immediately went into problem-solver mode like I'm like oh no my kids are wait like we're not doing this we're not playing this game I called the attorney I called you know this I said you know is there anybody that can kind of have a conversation like you know about this and they're like no that's like that's undue influence you're not allowed to do that <laughs> and so had to had to kind of sit there you know in that moment thought it's best to just leave and I don't know what that feels like to be in her shoes, and I'm not, I don't need, it's yeah. fine. We have pictures. That's just what we'll be able to bring home with of, of him with us. So we gathered up our bags full of freshly washed newborn clothes, and walking out of the hospital with an empty car seat is pretty disheartening. I mean, there's nothing you can do about it. And it was it was silent for a really long time. It was a surreal moment in the sense of having walked down that path before and feeling the certainty that God's gonna move, right? And going like, it's gonna be in his time. It's always his timing, not mine. Really, like all these kind of cliches and going like, yeah, I thought that before though. Like, I thought there was no chance this baby's gonna leave our house, right? And those emotions just come flooding back. Right? Okay, now I have to explain to Brooklyn and Trill Ugh. once again that all this excitement to bring home a new life is gone. He is not coming home with us. 
So we called and we're like, hey, we're on our way home. And they're like, that's great. How's the baby? And we're like, so he's not coming home with us. And they were just, they were quiet. They didn't know what to say. Mm -hmm. um, Mario's mom was watching the kids and she said, Brooklyn just heard that, immediately walked away from the phone and laid flat on the floor and just cried. And Trell got really quiet and he sat on the couch and cried. We were just about South Haven and uh, get a, a text from our attorney and she says, call me. And I'm like, oh geez, like I'm like, what is this, right? Like, I don't wanna deal with this. And um, so I call her <laughs> and uh, she, she goes, uh, you need to turn around. I'm like, oh, I thought we forgot something. <laughs> it was like, the, like, did I forget something there? And, and she said, she changed her mind. She signed the papers. He's at the hospital by himself. At first, it was really hard to believe. Like, are you serious? Like, <laughs> are we going to drive all the way down there and then they're going to tell us to come back again with no baby? Like, I can't do it again. So, like, this has to be. And they assured us the papers were signed. Like, she was no longer at the hospital. Called the school and decided to take the kids with us and, and knew that could be a long haul, us being there, and uh, packed up all the kids the next morning. Drove back down to to get him. The attorney told me point blank. She said, "I'm sorry that you've got your kids in the car. I'm sorry for this." She said, uh, "This this is going to be um, a lot of time, a lot of energy. You don't you don't want to do this. Turn around and go home. We're going to continue to come. What do we need to do?" And she said, "This is a big headache for." for a kid that you don't even know. And I said, I said, I agree. I said, but it's not too big of a headache for my son. And uh, so we got in the car, uh, we drove down there, we called the hospital. So I went in there, I said who I was, they brought Moses to me. Hey bud, never thought I'd see you again. Took him, took the few little things that he had and uh, put him in the car and we, we drove to the hotel where we lived with him and the rest of our family for the for the next week. The kids look back at that time now where it was such a stressful time and we were doing all these court dates via Zoom in a two-bedroom apartment with four children, one being 18 months old and one being a newborn. It was the most stressful time. But our kids talk about that as like the best vacation that ever had. <laughs> Remember that time when we went down to get Mosey and he, we got to stay in this place and I mean it looking, it was very stressful no doubt, but what a sweet time to sit in four walls with the six people we love the most Yeah. and just soak up, soak up that time. I think every last bit of control that, that I thought I had um, over my life, my family, my, my children. It's kind of stripped away through this process. It's something we wouldn't have chosen, but now having been through it, it's something we probably wouldn't have any, any differently.